Coming up next. I don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> it's got three words. The first one is the, Brandon. The. The second one, Jake, it's big. The third is chill. Nope. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the booking. I'm excited to be here. Brandon, you excited to be here? Moderately. Jake, just moderately. Brandon. Extraordinarily. I'm I ex- always excited to I be at the booking. exceptional excitement. Oh, you got it, Nathan. Hello, tall listeners in London. I would just like to speak to our growing listenership in the UK. Hello, governors. love us. Yay. Get accents. We got an email from somebody in London who was like, oh, by the way, your accents are horrendous. Please stop. Oh, I read terrific. Yeah, no, he was like, pip, pip. And then you were all like booking, explaining to him like, yeah, we know they're horrific and that's what's funny. And he was like, yeah, but it's not funny. He never said, yeah, but it's not funny. But he thought it. Is that what you thought, British friend? (laughs) That's what you thought. You probably thought it's hilarious. Probably should speak in a way he can understand. Is that what you thought? I like to think that I uh, all our all our friends in the UK can't understand this. <laughs> we have to translate yeah. it into Brit speak. <laughs> okay, we haven't even said our names. That's Brandon, a learned gentleman. Um, Brandon, hey, introduce me. He is your humble and obedient, mm-hmm. and he also is a host. Mm-hmm. That's right. His name is the one. The only mm-hmm. Nathan. Uh, Nathan. Nathan. What Nathan, time is it? Nathan. <laughs> Game time. Who? Albert. 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 So. Why don't we alternate words and introduce our friend? Let's do it. He's the pastor who's not a idiot. No, he's Thanks, guys not totally guys. Period. Yeah. <laughs> he's what you might think would be a boon to. You should you accept elephantitis. True. And also not a lie. Period. He is the pastor and a friend of literature <laughs> and handsome and <laughs> intelligent and not and wait, not ugly. No. He is not handsome. <laughs> I'm so confused. This right is now. so entertaining. It all tracks. <laughs> he's the pastor. Yeah, he's the pastor. He's the master of reading. Oh no! Mm-hmm. Or, or hooray! Hooray! I don't know what reaction. What's that sound? What's that sound? The airplane's going over. Oh my stars! The airplane's going over, indicating baggage check. The part of the show where we talk about the baggage that we're bringing to this novel, Brandon. Yeah. What baggage did you bring? To I think this I novel? touched on my baggage a little bit during context. Um, let's see. I grew up with my grandparents watching Perry Mason mm-hmm. uh, every night that I would spend the night over there. They'd be watching a Perry Mason television show. And so I had that context for the hard-boiled detective. You have the all the tropes. You have the detective sitting in his office with the dark shadows of the blinds falling over him, yep. sipping his whiskey, and the voiceovers that are very kind of cheesy, and the cigarette smoke that's just thick, and the sultry women, and the mysteries that are kind of mysteries, but not really mysteries. It's 
just a gangster who was mad at somebody. If I can interrupt you, Brandon. Yeah. Yes. Perry Mason, written uh-huh. by Earl Stanley Gardner, if I'm not mistaken. Uh-huh. Raymond Chandler, fan. One of the ways that Raymond Chandler learned to write was by analyzing an early an Earl Stanley Gar- Gardner Perry Mason story. I believe it was Perry Mason, and doing a detailed outline and then attempting to write his own version of that story. This was before he was published in the pulps when he just wanted to learn how to do it. He analyzed it. Huh. He wrote it and then he looked at it and he said what plays what works what what did i what scenes that i did actually play because i know it all plays the way that this other guy did it can i bring these scenes to life what can i learn about myself he swore by it he said it's the best way to become an author he said he could never convince any of his proteges and young authors to do it because obviously they'd be spending a lot of time working on a product that they would never be able to sell because it's the benjamin franklin method yeah that's yeah. i was just thinking the same thing it's benjamin franklin um worked for him yeah worked for him and worked True for chandler genius. and he swore by it he said he tried to get any number of people to do it young men that wanted to be writers and he said he could never convince anyone to do it but that he thought it was just it was such a good thing to do because you really saw like oh he brought this scene to life he brought the, he had these characters it felt like they were in a room together and I, I didn't and why not and why didn't this work why did this bit of plotting not go over when i did it but it did go over he just said it taught you everything about how to construct a story so huh. anyway so perry mason perry mason yeah my grandparents watched him mm-hmm And so from early childhood, I had these specific tropes in my imagination about the detective story. We watched Roger Rabbit growing up a lot. And let's just say I did not see the detective story as potentially high art. Mm -hmm. And so when I got into reading literature later on, I'd never even thought of Chandler as someone I might be interested in reading. No one ever recommended him. No one didn't ever not recommend him. Somehow I got it in my head that like Dashiell Hammett, he was a hack. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not convinced that Dashiell Hammett's actually a hack. I don't know. Right. Well, uh, Gertrude yeah. Stein didn't think he was. That's one. what I thought, and I think I'm wrong, but that's that is what I thought for a long time. I was very fond of the modern reimagining of the hard-boiled detective novel or the detective with uh, Fox Mulder mm-hmm. would watch him sure. a lot with my dad. So, And he is basically Marlowe, yeah. the imagined. Absolutely. So, yeah. The X-Files, for those who that's don't. That's a fun connection I had. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, that's, one, I think, I think it's yeah. true, yeah. yeah. I think he is our modern version of Marlowe. So. Yeah, there's no way that the X, I mean, there's no way that. The truth is out there. I mean, yeah. It is the out there. The truth is out there, yeah. He's got his code. He's going to find the truth, no matter, even if it's only him and Scully, is right yep. in the end. At least he'll be right. Yep. And I'll know it, yeah. even if no one else does. Jake, your baggage. Where to start? Um, I think I compared it to you to sort of growing up with uh, with Shrek and then trying to read a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. I don't even have the nostalgia of watching Perry Mason with my grandparents. I have Bugs Bunny and I have Roger Rabbit and... Calvin uh, and Hobbes. Calvin and Hobbes and a bunch of uh, sort of meta or just mocking... Parody. Parody takes downstream of this whole genre. It gives you the impression of the whole genre being chintzy and cheap and hackneyed and stupid before you ever have the opportunity to give it a chance. And so I've I've actually, I've never even seen, I've not seen the Maltese Falcon. I've not seen a lot of Humphrey Bogart. Well, the dumb thing, by the way, is that if you ever see a parody, it's going to rip off something that was specific to Chandler, but it's going to act like it's just a genre trope, which really cheapens Chandler, unfortunately. But the similes, which Chandler was a master of, anytime you watch a parody, it's going to be like, she walked into, she's linked into my room like a thing of putting, you know, it'll always be some over the top metaphor. Right. That's a spe- so, that's specific to Chandler. I've got the baggage that's 
tired of all of that right or hates all of that or whatever or thinks all of that's just really cheesy and funny and fun to make fun of even if it's just bugs bunny and as far as uh, detective stuff goes i am not sure Unless you count John Grisham, but you can't. I don't, I've not read anything really remotely detective novel-ish that's not Sherlock Holmes. Right. Um, Except for, of course, Murder on the Orient Express. That's right. Which was, I think, my first Agatha Christie. I guess that's some of the baggage that I brought to this book, just sort of like having having some hurdles in front of me in terms of just approaching the har- the genre of the hard-boiled detective. So that's like, I guess, genre baggage and maybe Chandler baggage. On the other side um i have been prepping for this uh booketing 100 stuff Mm. and reading this very uh big saga that's very plot driven Mm. had to throw chandler was in the middle of it right these are the kinds of books that are just like candy Mm -hmm. um for somebody with a sweet tooth and then you throw chandler in the middle of that and it's just a, a change of pace you know, he, he's actually, he's a craftsman and a craftsman of a different sort. It's just, it's throwing a wrench in the gears, I guess. And so that, that's the other bit of baggage that I sort of brought was just the con, the context of my life. And when I, when I came to read Chandler, the other thing is that <coughs> I really hate this copy that I got. Well, we sent our, our, we always send our listeners good copies and we sent our listeners pristine copies. But there were a couple of used copies in the bunch. And mm. so Brandon and I kept them for ourselves. Very noble of you. The copies we kept for ourselves were junk. And I literally didn't want to pick up the the physical book in front of me and, and read it because I didn't want to hold it too close to my face because I didn't want to get, I didn't want to breathe in the asbestos, m- moldy mildew. So there's just some some general stuff that sort of like uh, I it took me a minute to get started and to get into into this book and to buy in. But I spoilers, I did. So Yep, yep. Well, I don't have any baggage with this novel at all. False. Never even heard of it. Nope. Don't even know what it is really. Um uh, so yeah. What do you guys think about this book? Hey. Nope. You gotta give us the baggage, man. You gotta hear the baggage. Okay, I really like this book a lot. I grew up with it. I remember getting it from the library when I was 13 or 14 and absolutely falling in love with it and devouring all of his novels in the course of a year or so. He's got almost seven. It's seven. He's he's written seven and only seven. Oh, seven and only seven. Yep. And I really liked him a lot. So, yeah. How about that? Why'd you like him? I don't know. They're good. Yeah. They're... <laughs> oh, come on, man. Give the people... The whole reason we're doing Chandler oh, is about because it. he's... <laughs> no, come on, no, man. Nathan, Open up and be vulnerable okay, with this. I have. I don't want to talk about it. I've put off doing these novels now for three years. I guess we're on. A, or this is season three, right? That's right. Um, so there's been at least two years. These guys have heard me talk about this novel before. They've every year. I think when we're doing our book list, they've said, "Well, Nathan, why don't we do Chandler? You like him so much." And I say, "No, I don't want to do him because I know that my connection to him is personal. If Jake and Brandon don't like it or don't feel the same way, I really don't want to hear it." If there's anything that's wrong or false or immature about it, I really don't want to find that out. So yeah, I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) Thanks for listening, everybody. Oh, come on. Give us more. Give us more. More, you say? Okay. Look, look. yeah, go ahead. This novel, 
redefined the way I thought about writing. It was somebody writing a genre novel, a fun novel, a detective novel, a story. And instead of caring about the plot, they were caring about the scenes. They were caring about the characters. They were caring about the dialogue. They were caring about the descriptions. And it was a real turning point in my life, not to make too big of a deal, but it was just like, oh, somebody can take something that's disreputable, something that's nobody has any respect for and they can make art out of it. And that's really, really cool. And I want to find that wherever I can. And I want to hold genre things to that standard. When I go see a Star Wars movie, I don't want to accept that it has bad dialogue because it's a Star Wars movie. Because actually, you can write a Star Wars movie and you can put good dialogue in it. And it made me realize how fun it is to watch someone succeed within a formula Someone's got these things, these elements that they have to work with, and the elements aren't going anywhere. What are they going to do with them? And it's what's fun about watching movies. It's what's fun about watching TV shows. It's what's fun about getting into sci-fi or detective or any kind of genre stuff, all of which I've spent a lot of time in my life enjoying. Seeing someone stuck within a formula and then see them, seeing them being uh, creative within that formula it's just really exciting. creative within really creative within real constraints. Within real constraints, yeah. Marlowe's got to solve a mystery. There's got to be femme fatales. There's got to be this. There's got to be action. Chandler said when the people action have flags, to die. yeah, people have to die. It's got to be gruesome and exciting and fun, and the story's got to keep moving. To watch someone pull that off and actually be a real writer was really exciting. It was really exciting to see that somebody could do both. So that was number one of what I responded to in the book. Anytime I sit down to write anything, I think about Chandler. He's my guy. Like, I don't want to just rip him off, which is an easy thing to do because he has a very distinctive style, very distinctive way he writes dialogue, way that he does the, you know, the similes, the famous similes. She was a blonde to make a bishop kick a hole in a stained glass window. Is that one in this book? No. Um, I think that's in Farewell, My Lovey. But, you know, he was as conspicuous as a tarantula on a piece of angel food cake. You know, all that kind of stuff that people kind of like to parody about Chandler. But he's also just a really good writer. Like, he brings some of these scenes to life. And they're hackneyed scenes, you know? He doesn't have to do it. But Dennis Johnson... <clears throat> wrote kind of his homage to Chandler and No One Move, one of his last novels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. It's like a... And it actually a, reads a lot like this. The detective story, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, but it has, like reads like this. Yeah. So I just not thought of that. Now here's an example. This is from chapter 22, first paragraph. It was about 1030 when the little yellow-sashed Mexican or- orchestra got tired of playing a low-voiced, prettied-up Roomba that nobody was dancing to. The gourd player rubbed his fingertips together as if they were sore and got a cigarette into his mouth almost with the same movement. The other four, with a timed simultaneous stoop, reached under their chairs for glasses from which they sipped, smacking their lips and flashing their eyes. Tequila, their manner said. It was probably mineral water. The pretense was as wasted as the music. Nobody was looking at them. That's just a really nice description that makes you understand what this seedy little gambling hall is like. Yeah, I really remember that. That scene really popped to me. And this book is full of stuff like that. Marlowe shows up. He's in the powder blue, Robin's egg blue suit. He's every inch what a detective should be. He goes into the 
the old man's house. He's, he sees the tapestry with, with the naked woman with the convenient hair and the knight that's rescuing her from whatever. Not making much progress. Not making much progress. He just paints these scenes in a way that there's just nobody that gives me, I mean, I want to start using like drug language. I was about to say contact high. Maybe that's not right. But there's nobody that just like gives me a writerly buzz. Dennis Johnson is probably the other one that comes the closest, or Cormac McCarthy, maybe, or... You can tell You can tell that um, Dennis Johnson is quite fond of him. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's absolutely true. Dennis Johnson's just like his precocious child or something like that, somebody that's just taking things to the next weird, drugged-up step of, <laughs> of what this guy that's invented. True. In some ways, yeah, I think that Dennis Johnson is kind of polishing what... He was doing. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right because he's taking modern American vernacular and he's making poetry out of it. If Shakespeare was alive in the 1950s, I think maybe he would have written a little something like this. And I know that sounds hyperbolic, but to me, that is the poetry that I see in Chandler. So maybe I'm straying from, whatchamacallit, from baggage here, but I'm just trying to explain. I, this guy really expanded my consciousness, man. Like I suddenly understood you could write poetry and you could write it in a modern American vernacular and people. People wouldn't see it as poetry. They wouldn't perceive it that way. Um, they would just yeah. they just think you were writing trash even. I mean, nobody <coughs> recognized this guy as a genius. Yeah, here's the first sentence that stood out to me, and I mentioned this in the last episode. Ten blocks of that, and I like how he keeps using that word, that. Mm-hmm. Um, ten blocks of that, winding down curved rain-swept streets, under the steady drip of trees, past lighted windows and big houses and ghostly enormous grounds, vague clusters of eaves and gables and lighted windows high on the hillside, remote and inaccessible like witch houses in a forest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. It's really nice. Yeah. It's really nice. Um, so he gives you all those yeah. details you need, and then he does exactly what the analogy should do, which is kind of tighten. Mm-hmm. Brings it and just makes it. It's like um, he's giving you the picture. It's almost there, but it's still a little fuzzy. And then the analogy brings it into sharp focus. Yeah, it's just like it turns yeah. that winch and suddenly, oh. And it gives it a layer of something that wasn't there before. Yeah, and he always, he has these things, which maybe they seem cliched now, but, you know, it was dark with something more than night stuff that has stuck in my mind all these years oh what's the one i always say um not the blonde but um it was as dark as the space between the stars to me that's like the most beautiful sentence that's been written in the 20th century i don't know i don't remember what the context is i don't remember what he's describing but what a beautiful way to describe darkness the space between the stars like what's darker than that Chandler's always kind of in the back of my mind. He's one of those people like Chesterton or Lewis or uh, E.B. White, who I'll just read a little bit of before I write, just to remind me what words can do when they're put together in certain combinations. So I know I'm blathering on and on, but I just want people to understand like whether whether this book will do the same thing for you when you read it. It eh, probably won't. It hit me at the right time, but I can't separate it. It's very personal. The other thing that I really responded to was the character of Marlowe, who for me is the ultimate existential cool character. I mean, he's just the best. You know, the cheesy part in the novel where he says, uh, where Carmen is throwing herself at him and then he goes to the chessboard and he messes around with the knight and then he says, it's not a game for knights. There's something really inspiring. There was when I was a kid, and I I have to admit there still is, about this guy who's just dogged in his ability to just keep going, keep doing the right thing, keep trying to solve, even though no one appreciates it. He's not getting paid much. He's hardly making a living. It's only the alcohol that's keeping him going most of the time. Well, it's what John Wayne tapped into. It's what Harrison Ford tapped into. It's certainly what Humphrey Bogart tapped into. Absolutely. He's in the lineage of all these great 
American heroes. I think he's in the lineage that the original Marlowe back in Conrad was in. I don't know whether that was conscious or not. I, I suspect it was. I think he's probably called, I think he's probably named after that Marlowe, but I could be wrong about that. I don't know. But I really, really liked that. And specifically what I responded to was the fact that he had a sense of humor about it. The fact that he was wry about it, the fact that he made his judgments about people and he held to them and he wasn't a respecter of anyone. I thought that was really cool. And I still do. I mean, frankly speaking, I always think of the scene where Mrs. Regan says, I don't like your manners. And he says, I don't like them either. I mourn over them on long winter's evenings. You know, just like, what a cool thing to say. Yeah, I, you're right, lady. You get me. But also you don't. And my judgments are my own. I don't know how to talk about it, but Maybe for people who had a really good relationship with their dad, some of this stuff was obvious, you know, oh, well, you should be discerning. And, you know, the only person that can ultimately make your judgment, make judgments about people is, is you and you're the one that's going to stand before God. So you, you make your judgments and then you act and you do the right thing. And maybe these things are really obvious for people. But for me, it was encapsulated in this stupid fictional character. So he's an important fictional character. You know, he's one of my fictional heroes. So, yeah. I hope you guys like this stupid book. Well, Nathan, <laughs> now that you mention it, let's talk about this ah! book. How do you want to handle it? I think basically, I mean, what a beautiful episode. You just told everybody what's worth reading in this book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is what's worth appreciating about Chandler and about Marlowe. Yeah. So I guess to kind of show people behind the curtain here, we've all talked about this book and we're trying to figure out how to talk about it. Yeah. There's not a whole lot to say about the characters. And I was racking my brain trying to figure out what I was going to say about the characters. He's not someone who writes any character in depth except for Marlowe. Yeah. And that's because all these characters share in common their depravity and sort of the nastiness of this noir, dark world. What Chandler, Chandler looks at a world that Mm -hmm. is bleak and corrupt and there's no winning in it. And then he, he, he looks at that and he says, what if there were a, a hero that understood just exactly how bleak, understood better than you how bleak and corrupt it all was, understood just how nasty everyone is, was the guy who was ahead of everybody in a room, had everybody's number, and looked at it all and just decided, because deep down he was a good guy and a, a principled guy, he was going to do the right thing. And that's what made him good, is he was willing to fight for mm-hmm. his principles. He was willing to suffer for them. And suffer. He was willing to accept the consequences of just being the guy who, for whatever reason, his instinct is to do the right thing. Yeah, and we don't don't even know. It's part of that 20th century male American hero mystique that we don't really know ultimately why, what it is that drives Marlowe to be the guy. Um, But it doesn't matter. Well, I think it's what you were reading about what he thinks of this detective. It's just sort of an instinct. It's something they have a motivation to be good. Yeah, he's a knight in shining army. So what what is right? So you say he's a good person in this world. What is good? Well, good is to not stab someone in the back. Good Mm -hmm. is to protect others. Good is to take up someone's interest and suffer for it. Good is not to take advantage of Good is not to take advantage of people. That's right. There's no way that Eddie Mars, the gangster guy in the story, is going to be able to buy him off. And he tries implicitly multiple times in the novel to turn Marlowe. And it's just Marlowe scoffs at that kind of thing. And there are interesting tragic characters. Characters who like Mara's wife mm-hmm. and the oldest daughter who protects her sister. Yeah. Because that's the big twist at the end. Yeah. And so there are interesting tragic figures within this world and there are gradations of how they are corrupted by it. But it's not about but, them. Yeah, but that's so, you know, like, so we've talked a lot about Tolstoy and how he has a cast of 72 characters, but every character seems distinct. Right. Right. And it really does. It seems like you've met these people in life now. 
it's not the same way with these stories. And I think that's fine because you have to see what is an author trying to do. Is it a failure or is it not a failure? It'd be a fail. I'm, I'm not going to bring up our whipping boy. Mm-hmm. But I will say, I think that that person thought that they were bringing up distinct characters for us. Does that person's name rhyme, rhyme, rhyme with Burnest Blind? Maybe. Perhaps. And yet, so he failed at his attempt. But this, I don't think that's what Chandler was trying to do. It reminds me a lot of Flannery O'Connor, who we'll read later. Yeah. And she doesn't care about giving us deep insight into character insofar as she's giving us three-dimensional characters. Right. She has a very specific agenda. And the agenda here for Chandler is to show us the knight in shining armor in a world that is this corrupt and fallen. This cynical. Yeah. yeah. What would what would somebody who is knightly and noble you, yeah, look who, like who in this world? trust to always yeah. do the right thing. And do it, as Nathan said earlier, with a smirk and a wry smile yeah. and a and a and a little bit of a shrug of the shoulders like Probably this, shouldn't. this is gonna suck, but you know, here we go. Since this world is fallen and dark and it is noir, probably should warn people that since this world is fallen and dark and it is noir, probably should warn people that there is some content. It's yeah, always in the background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, but Actually, one, of the big, one of the big themes is about him trying to get a pornographer. There are naked bodies. <laughs> you don't, de- they don't, they're not described, but. I thought that was fascinating, kind of though. It's really interesting yeah. to well, read a novel. Well, he describes legs. Yeah. He really likes to describe legs. He likes his legs. Um, he's a leg man, for sure. But it's it's fascinating, I think, just as a side point, to read what was considered gritty and, you know, over the top and violent and gr- grimy back in the day. Because it's like this pornography library, this guy that's like renting out. Yeah. It's, it's it's evil, but it's also really quaint by our standards. It's like oh, yeah. a... Pictures of naked women. Yeah. It's not taxi driver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty... It's actually... I mean, I hate to say this because it is all wicked, but it's very soft core by, by the standards of today. But, you know, and then you got the gay Geiger's boyfriend or whatever, who's yep. not the most politically correct. Uh, but it's going to be like what we'll hit with Flannery O'Connor. Yeah. To show us a seedy, nasty world, either to show us what the hero would look like mm. or to show us why they all deserve judgment right. and death. <laughs> then you have to show the seedy, nasty world. And it is seedy. And as we go on, you know, if we read, maybe someday we will, other Marlowe novels, there are some more good characters that he comes across later on. But in this one, it's like the General doesn't deserve Marlowe being a knight in shining armor for him. Mrs. Regan certainly is no, she's no Guinevere. There's, there's nobody that really deserves much of anything besides judgment in this story. The only person who seems to get it's Marlowe. Yeah. Judgment. He gets beat up. He gets... It's interesting. Yeah. I I mean, with books like this, you definitely see how the author's vision for their world shapes. That's why, again, you know, I keep saying I don't buy that you can't consider the author, but it does matter. Flannery O'Connor's conclusions are very different than uh, Chandler's, and the reasons why they came to different conclusions matter. She would have been having horrible things happen to these people. <laughs> oh, totally. And, and, and you know, she's probably, a, she, uh, I can almost certainly say she's a better moralist than Chandler would ever dream of being, but there is something very noble and endearing about a character that's just well, this is going to sound cheesy and over the top, but what I was about to say was someone who's basically just willing to bear the weight of other people's sin. Mm-hmm. You know, there's none, none, of, none of these people deserve. There's there's nobody that Chan, that Marlowe should take a pain for. None of these people deserve to do it. But he just does it anyway yeah. because it's his job. 
This is his code. He follows this. And and maybe because more people just took responsibility for the crookedness and brokenness of the world and yeah. stood up and took re- responsibility for the people in their lives, however corrupt, then maybe the world would be a better place. Yeah, and we get like all these, the police are corrupt. They're in cahoots with Eddie Mars. Doesn't he describe at some point the idea that they would have had two cops during Prohibition yeah. making sure that people didn't bring their own gin into the bar but had to drink the houses? Yep. So it's just like everybody sucks. Everybody's corrupt. And it's a very, you know, of course, 14-year-old Nathan thought this was the coolest because 14-year-old Nathan thought that everybody sucked and he was the only one that got it. And it is a very self-aggrandizing kind of a fantasy world to live in. I, I, I fully admit that in my hopefully greater maturity. But when you when you're coming to a place where you realize that everybody sucks and everybody's a hypocrite, to have somebody who abominated pretense the way that Marlowe abominates pretense, like the one thing he's not is pretentious, and the one thing yeah. he can't stand is pretense. And so you have this guy; he sees it just like you see it. There's a sense in which you could say, yeah, well, that's that's immature. That's just you know right there with why people love Dostoevsky, but. Or, or right there with Flannery O'Connor. Mm-hmm. But to have a hero that sees it as you see it and then still does the right thing, you're not sure what it's worth in the end, but at least he did the right thing and you know it and can appreciate and love him for it. Isn't that somehow better than Flannery O'Connor's characters just getting judged or Dostoevsky's characters just dying? We'll talk about it with Flannery. She's a character in her own stories. She's the one who gets it. And I think there's a sense that you could probably say Chandler is a character. I mean, he is Marlowe, and he's just <clears throat> looking at this stupid, corrupt world and just saying, so I guess the best thing we can do is just keep plugging, take responsibility where we can. And that's, I don't know. I still think it's kind of cool. <laughs> I tried to pretend like I didn't like Stephen King in an old episode of The Booking, and everybody called me on it. So I'm not going to pretend like I don't think that this is pretty cool. I think this is the ultimate cool. I think this is so cool. <laughs> I'm, I admit there may be a little bit of my my teenage nostalgia coloring that, but I just think you want dudes in life that are just going to take responsibility for the people around them and they're not going to be a, make a big deal out of it. They're going to be honorable and then they're not going to go around telling everybody how they're honorable are. Talk about it. Yeah, they're going to, if they, if they do talk about it, it's going to be with sarcasm, with a wry sense of humor about their own failings, their own weakness and the weaknesses of other people. I just think that that's like the ultimate manly pose. That's what you want in your dad. That's what you want in your friends. That's that's what that's what you look for. So that's why I liked this book. That and the style, which I think is really good. Is there anything else to say about this book? We alluded to this in the last episode, but if you're the kind of person that is in a book or in a d- detective novel because of the fun who did it plot, yep. then you're in for a rude awakening. <laughs> <laughs> It's not following any of those kind of yeah, formulas. Yeah, it is interesting how it, you can tell that he is just as concerned about character and the things that make a, the things that we've looked at as making a good author become a good author versus just an average author. It would be nice if he was concerned about story. I think so. he is uniquely unconcerned with story. He's exceptional, if that's the word that I want, mm-hmm. in the is way he, that he doesn't care about story. He's concerned about the character of Marlowe. Mm-hmm. He's concerned about the way that he's writing. He's concerned about the scene that he's setting. It, and this is really interesting to me because you are always, especially in movies, you're always resenting where people are doing things because it's what the plot dictates. Yeah. And, and, and I, I, I see 
now more Chandler in that the plot does what Marlo dictated. What what's gonna make Marlo look cool? What's gonna make Marlo look awesome? What's gonna give Marlo an opportunity to shine? Well the plot's just gonna turn in that direction. Right. And then you have this this group of grotesques that are just existing to give Marlo an opportunity to Yeah, it's kinda like just pinballs punched in like... the gut and tied up to a chair and yeah. have to walk bloodied through the rain and kill some guy and mm-hmm. you know, and then stand for hours the D is a house right whatever it is you know like yeah which i would i mean without making a big deal about it that's obviously not typical detective fare the what jake was describing yeah yeah. it's not typical detective stories are driven by they are the consummate plot driven yeah who's who done it yeah well marlo's not necessarily smarter than anyone else he's just the guy that's gonna last the longest and and stick in there until the mystery resolves itself well he's not this but he is the smartest. smartest But not, I guess what I'm just distinguishing, he's not like that Sherlock Holmes, he's going to walk in, he's going to observe that one thing. That's because for Marlowe's detective style is not, you know, and he even comments on it in the book. Like, he's not going to find the one clue in the streets that the cops miss. The cops are going to find it, and then they're going to screw it up. Mm-hmm. What, he he actually is more like a Poirot mm-hmm. in the sense that Poirot, Holmes is going to know the tobacco ash. 16 ashes, yeah, types of ash. Poirot is going to be in the head of the killer. Killer, mm-hmm. And and Marlo's going to have more of that streetwise sort of intuition. Um, he knows where he's not psychoanalyzing in his with his little gray cells. Yeah, but he but he he knows people and he knows the nature of the corruption of the city. And so he's ahead of he he knows what what what's in a man. He knows he can size somebody up. He knows what's motivating them. He knows where they're going to draw their lines and where they're not. And he's not going to be surprised by anything. Mm-hmm. And so he's going to follow his gut um, until he gets to the bottom of something. And, but but that means, what that means functionally is that Chandler starts there. Right. And then lets everything else in terms of plot flow from that. It really is just like watching a bunch of pool balls bounce against each other. It's just like there's not a lot of rhyme and reason. It's just like Marlo's here and he meets these guys and they're tough. And then this person over here strikes a pose and then she's sexy over here, but also dangerous. And then this and then this and then it's just a collection of scenes. And Chandler was very explicit about admitting that. He talked about how a movie producer, I think I've told this story on a booking or a sanity or something, but he said a movie producer told Chandler he did not like making detective movies because everything that was important happened in the last five minutes while the audience was reaching for its hat. And Chandler said, you're right, but you're also wrong because you're talking about the wrong kind of mystery. You're talking about the Sherlock Holmes kind of mystery. My kind of mystery has nothing to do with plot. It has everything to do with scene. Scene outranks plot every time. A good plot. This is is not a mystery novel. It's a detective novel. And and there is a difference. And I think that that's part of, for most people, and and I think for me, when I think, uh, to me, a detective novel is a mystery novel. And you come to something like this, and if that's your expectation, well, if you're, if you're trying to like match there, your wits there, and this, figure it out this, before Marlowe, this is like, not a this is not a mystery novel. You're not solving a problem here. You're watching Marlowe get to the bottom of something that he thinks is fishy, mm-hmm. and that's it. And you are not going to figure it out, and you're not going to. He'll make sense of it for you as he goes, right? But it's really just about Marlowe's awesome. Yeah, and I <laughs> that was enough for me. I like that. And I like the sort of Dickensian, just watching all these grotesques. His characters aren't deep, but they're all memorable and they all have that one quirk. You know, Eddie Mars always stands with his thumbs outside his pockets. He's kind of a smooth gangster that's 
tries to be sophisticated, but actually you can tell comes. So you got like all these tough and Mrs. Regan and Carmen with her real over the top, psychotic little girl thing. The one guy who gets poisoned by cyanide who talks like Marlo does. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's hard for me to even keep these novels straight, tell you the truth. But yeah, it's just, um, you know, it's fun. Kind of uh, Dickens really is maybe the comparison. Not exactly, but just in the sense that you watch It's funny. We we draw a lot of comparisons to Dickens and um, interested to actually read Dickens the well, more we do it. You'll see. He's the master in some ways. Well, what, what Dickens has is he has these over-the-top characters that express themselves through verbosity, through through dialogue, through just saying... Can these... I just tell you how again how much I hated Dickens in high school? Yeah, yeah that's why it's exciting. But yeah. all I mean is I hated Great Expectations, so I know, who knows? Kind of wonder, wonder if we shouldn't have done David Copperfield first. Maybe. I, I think we made the right choice. We'll yeah. see. We'll see. I think I think Jake's gonna love Bleak House. That's that's where my money is, and I think we're all gonna love it. I'm looking forward to reading. Yeah, it's gonna be great, and we're gonna finally learn about Detective Buckets. You've alluded to now on more than one episode. He's been looming over. Mm-hmm. The great Detective Bucket. All right, Brandon. Does this book get the B SOA? Book yeah, it does. Um, I mean, with a caveat that there's some stuff that people might be uncomfortable with, but it gets the B SOA. You know, we should just say that this this is the raciest book that we've read. Is it? Yes. I mean, the only competition. Would would be Hemingway. Hemingway's racier than this. I mean, Hemingway actually has full-on sex scenes, which this doesn't quite. Which he doesn't describe with the detail and imagery, the specifics that Chandler. Lots of legs. Lots of legs. Yeah. I'm not going to try and defend it. It kind of has the sheen of nostalgia such that I can't really even judge that because I'm just like, eh, it's the thing I grew up with. I'm, just... I'm not trying to say it's racy beyond being something a, a Christian can read in good conscience. I'm just saying yeah, it's racy. that relative to everything else we've read, and I'm, I mean, re- to my mind, relative to Anna Karenina, relative to Hemingway, I'm not sure I'd go there with you on Hemingway, but I suppose you can't get into that without... But it's at least racy enough for people to be warned. Yeah, yeah for sure. So uh, Yeah, there you go. That's fair. I was going to say, so I was thinking outside somebody brought up why we forgive him when he's mainly style, but he doesn't really have the story. And so the difference is, like with Joyce and Faulkner, yeah, I get the sense that the style is all about them. Mm-hmm. And that's what bothers me. It's at the service yeah. of them. It's at the service of their image. And I don't get that sense with Carver or with him at all. Mm-hmm. So Carver, yeah. Chandler, I'm, I'm, Raymond Carver. I'm proud yeah. of us for making it through a whole podcast, two podcasts without doing that. Yeah. But. The difference with him is that it's still serving the character. This is Marlowe telling the story, and these similes seem like Marlowe just as much as they do Chandler. Mm-hmm. And so the writing is good, but the writing is also serving the project he has. Yeah. Instead of- He's a populist, and it's really hard yeah. to to fault a populist for his style Yeah, in the same way you can fault a snob like Joyce. And yeah. the interesting thing about this novel not having a discernible plot, it doesn't. We'll talk, maybe we'll talk about next week. Howard Hawks, when he filmed the movie, famously got confused, couldn't couldn't re- figure out based on the screenplay who killed the chauffeur. They called Chandler from the studio, and Chandler had no clue who killed the chef, or he didn't know any better than anyone else. Um, and I couldn't tell you, having just read the thing, who and having read it multiple times in my life, who killed the chauffeur? Did Carmen kill the chauffeur? No, uh, Carmen killed Joe Ge- Brody. Joe Brody killed the chauffeur, and then Carmen killed Geiger. Carmen killed Geiger. Oh no no no. Uh, Brody killed... Brody killed Geiger, right? No. Carmen... No. (laughs) Brody killed... You're right. Brody killed Geiger. No, the chauffeur killed Geiger. The chauffeur was jealous. That's right. The chauffeur killed Geiger. Yep. Who killed the chauffeur? Brody. Brody killed the chauffeur. Okay. 
Who did Carmen actually kill? She killed Rusty. So Brody was like around right. when it happened. And then... Because he was on a stakeout. Yeah. He put a bullet in the chauffeur as he fled the scene. And then the chauffeur ended up going off the pier. That's right. And then uh, the gay lover killed Brody, assuming Brody had killed Geiger. <laughs> and then the gay lover ends up in jail, San Quentin. Right. Where he's going to get... Probably going to take a plea so he won't get the gas, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, who wouldn't? And Chandler... Or Chandler Marlowe sews it all up and then decides he's not done because he's going to get to the bottom of Regan. Carmen killed Regan. Mars was spooked by Regan being dead, set it up to look like Regan had run off with his wife <laughs> because that's going to throw people off the trail because they're afraid that they're going to pin Regan's death on him because he has a motive. So he's faking Regan running off with his wife. And, and then Marlo goes and uh, kills the bad guy, but only after the bad guy is tipped off by the guy who knows the girl, who knows Brody. See, it's ironclad. It all makes perfect sense. You got it. <laughs> I'm impressed that you could, I, I couldn't have reconstructed it like Plot, that. Plot, man. Yeah. A key into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jake, B-Y-S-O-A. It was so hard figuring this book out. I was like, <laughs> what is going on? Well, now that you guys have opened Pandora's box and made us read one of these things, I may have to, in another year or two, read one of the other ones because there are- there I are, think we will. There are ones with better, more emotionally resonant plots, but I thought we had to do this one first because it really is the introductory kind of get to know Marlowe book, so. Yeah, I give it the seal of approval. If you're the kind of person that likes this thing, then this is the kind of thing you might really, really love. Good fun reading, enjoyable, carries you along, very evocative and poetic, and Marlo's a fun character. You just need to know that you're in a an Indiana Jones movie, and, the, and it's really just about how cool Indiana Jones is, and it doesn't really matter what he's doing or how he gets it done. Yep, that's fair. Uh, I recommend this to everyone with taste, to everyone with to everyone that gets it. If you're the kind of person that's listening and you get it, you understand life, you understand how it works, you uh, love life, you're an awesome person, you're really, really cool, and you like great things, you should probably read this book. You don't like good things, you don't get it, you're confused, you don't even know why you're listening to this podcast, you're not sure whether you like us, you don't, if you're, if you're just basically, in summation, the kind of person that doesn't get it, just doesn't get life, don't read this book, you probably won't like it that much, but highest BYSOA for me. But I acknowledge this isn't, doesn't even come close to What's being. What's the Y stand for? Did I say BYSOA? Uh, bring your own BYO. BYSOA. Bring your seal. <coughs> bring your. Bring your sack of. Bagels. Asparagus. Yeah. Asparagus. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of like a B. Arugula. We're going to do donor shout outs. Hey, let's shout out Jimmy and little Annie. Jimmy Dean and Annie Oakley. Yay. Boom. That's the formula for today's one, is Jake's going to shout them out. Brandon's going to make... Firework noises. <laughs> Firework noises. Tell what that was. <laughs> Lily of the Valley. Lily of the Valley. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Andrew and Esther and little Andrew and Esther baby and Timothy. Little baby Timothy. <laughs> <laughs> the inscrutable Jenny Z. The inscrutable Jenny Z. <laughs> Very patriotic one for Denny Z. Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> John and Jill and little baby Max, the lovebirds. John and Jill and little baby Max. <laughs> Give us some money. Oh no! David's mighty men transport. <laughs> David's mighty men transport. <laughs> My beloved mother breath. My beloved I love the smell of napalm in the morning. <laughs> you love the smell of napalm in the morning? I do. <laughs> you never come around with the napalm? <laughs> Fiddler on the roof meets. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese. Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese. Da 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 dum dum ba ba bum. Benny and Danity. Benny, so many of these. These are all people who are giving us lots of money. Nathan, not me. Nathan, not Nathan. Kaboom! Eric and Catherine and little baby X. Eric and Catherine and little baby X. Oh, we're almost done. Professor X. There we go. It's like the Mission Impossible trailer that I've seen 4,000 times in the theater. In the theater. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, I wonder, have you ever chosen not to? Today was written and produced by Nathan Hours and Brendan was here. Jake was here. Nathan was here. It was fun. You can go to patreon.com forward slash the booking, sign up to support us for any number of great levels. You can go to Warhorn Media forward slash give and just give money to Warhorn Media, support our great Tax work. Deductibly Tax give. deductible. And um, if you need titles done, you can go to chastineland.com, I believe it is. If you need aught yeah. transported, mm-hmm. go to David's Money Men Transport. That's right. But uh, yeah, for all your title titling needs, for all your uh, titling needs, titling needs. If you have an oil and gas well <coughs> that you want us to look at and say, yeah, that's an oil and gas well. Mm-hmm. You get those Chastine brothers out there. They know what they know the score. They get it. In fact, as we alluded to, people that get it, people that don't get it. Brandon, he's one of the principal people in this world that gets it. Wow. So it's high honor, Nathan. Right up there with Marlo. Wow. Um, so good job, Brandon. Thank you, Nathan. You're welcome. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. Next week, we'll be back with the movie, the Humphrey Bogart movie. And then... Booking 100, baby. Booking 100. Party! We're going to party like it's episode 100. Yep, we will. Yay! Yay!